Uh, welcome to the Mic Drop Markets Spaces today to talk China. Uh, just as a reminder before we begin, this material is presented solely for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not to be construed as a recommendation, solicitation, or an offer to buy or sell, long or short, any securities, commodities, or related financial instruments. As always, please contact a licensed professional before making any investment or trading decisions. And with that, we I will introduce our guest. There's Tony. I just sent you another speaker invite, Tony. I see you. Um, <laughs> that will introduce our guest today. We have Mary Kissel. Mary is the Executive Vice President and Senior Policy Advisors at Stevens Incorporated. In this role, she provides advice on geopolitical risk and macroeconomic trends to Stevens clients and the Stevens management team from October 2018 to January 2021, Mary served as the senior advisor to Secretary of State Michael Pompeo. Prior to joining the State Department, she had a long distinguished career on Wall Street Journal editorial board, including stints as chief foreign policy writer in New York City and Asia Pacific editorial page editor based in Hong Kong. And she started her career at Goldman Sachs. Next, we have Leland Miller, who is the co-founder and CEO of China Beige Book. He is a noted authority on China's economy and financial system. He is a frequent commentator on every media outlet you can imagine. He has served as guest host of two of the top financial morning shows, CNBC Squawk Box and Bloomberg Surveillance. Before co-founding China Beige Book in 2010, Leland was a capital markets attorney based out of New York and Hong Kong and worked on the deal team at a major investment bank. He holds a law degree from the University of Virginia and a master's degree in Chinese history from Oxford University. He is an elected member of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations and an elected life member of the Council on Foreign Relations. In February of this year, congratulations, Leland was appointed com commissioner of the congressionally mandated U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission by Speaker of the House Mike Johnson. Last but not least, hopefully Tony can get up here. <laughs> we have Tony Nash, who is the CEO and founder of Complete Intelligence. Previously, Tony built and led global research for The Economist and the Asia Consulting Business for IHS, which is now part of the S&P. He is a frequent public speaker and contributor to leading global media and has served as advisor to government and think tanks in Tokyo, Singapore, Beijing, Washington, D.C., and others. He is an international advisory board member for Texas A&M University. He has a master's degree in international relations from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts and a B.A. of Business Management from Texas A&M. And with that, uh, welcome, everybody. Um, how I usually do this, because you guys are new, um, we kind of go in around so nobody's sitting silent for too long, but please, you know, any question I ask somebody, if you have a comment uh, or if you want to add something to their comment, please feel free to do so. We can make this as roundtable discussion as you would like. And with that, we will get started with the questions. And thank you again, everybody, for taking your time out of your busy day to, to speak with us. Um, I'll start with Mary. So we've seen money flowing out of China markets and foreign investment last year rose the least amount since 1993. Is this just a confidence problem in China due to the property sector in 
implosion or or is it something bigger? Well, it's it's, it's great to be with you and um, and great to be with such a great group. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Um, no, I, I, I think there's there's a, a deeper fundamental reason here, which is that investors, just like CEOs and boards in the United States and elsewhere, have recognized um, that they they have to look at the fundamentals of the of the economy and, and, and the political structure. And I think one of the most important things we did in the Trump administration was that we woke up the world um, and the United States and the business community to, to, to the reality that this is a Marxist-Leninist system. There's no property rights. There's no rule of law. It's deeply corrupt. Um, and it's a nation which is adversarial to us. Um, and, and, and frankly, Tracy, and I, I don't think this gets enough attention. I talk to clients about it a lot. A lot. It's actually not, not a safe place for you to go as, a, as an American or a European. Um, we don't talk about that a lot, but I think that's, that's increasingly evident. And so you have proliferating risks. You have financial risks, you have business risks, you have physical risks to your people, you have reputational risk. Um, and you know, forget, forget what's said, let's look, you know, look at what they do. It's very evident um, the trajectory is that those risks will proliferate. And I think what you're seeing from the investment community is that investors are just starting to take that seriously. They're starting to believe what General Secretary Xi says and they're returning to basic investment principles. They are diversifying their supply chains. They are walling off China um, in their IT systems. And if they can get out, they're getting out. And now that's not true across the board. Um, it's not true of every you know, Fortune 100 company that's invested in China. Every company is different. It, you know, there's a different point of view if you make, for instance, food um, versus um, you know, some kind of uh, proprietary dual-use technology. Obviously, that's different. So we're painting with a broad brush here, but I, the short answer to the question is no, I, I don't think this is tr uh, uh, just because of the property market. I think there's a far, far more, uh, a far deeper um, reassessment of what China is and a, and, a, and a simple return to sanity to say, we're going we're gonna to evaluate our business in China just like we would in France, right? We're not going to accept a risk profile just because it's China, that we wouldn't accept anywhere else in the world. And so what do you think, um, or what is your view on China's recent regulatory crackdown on tech giants like Alibaba and Tencent? What do you think the motivations are behind this, uh, this, these actions, and what implications do they have for foreign investors? Well, uh, I really want to get Tony and Leland in on this, so I'll keep my answer short. Um, China is a party state. That means the point of the whole place is to maintain uh, the party's control domestically, to enrich the party, and to expand its reach abroad. So we can't talk about sectors in China as if we're talking about the tech sector in Silicon Valley. They don't think about it that way. The crackdown, so to speak, on the tech sector is why General Secretary Xi was elevated to power in the first place a decade ago. The party thought that they were losing control over a very powerful parts of the economy. There were CEOs who were uh, earning a lot of money and gaining uh, political clout and power, and that was intolerable in a party state. And so Xi Jinping was installed to reassert the party's control, top-down control, and that's what he is doing. This is the point. I hear a lot of investors talking about China and, gosh, you know, 
why would they crack down? It's hurting their economic growth rates. No, this is a system that doesn't value human life. It's a totalitarian system and a party state, and it has to be viewed that way. I'm not saying that you know, politics is the only thing that you need to understand about China as an investor or a business person, but it's key. It's key to everything else. It impacts everything else, and, and, and we have to talk about it honestly in the language that they use to talk about themselves. That is key if you're invested in China or if you want to stay invested in China, you're thinking about getting involved. I don't recommend it, but um, if you don't understand the, the, the politics of it and the fact that it's a party state, then you're not going to understand anything else about China. That's the key in my view. But I'm interested to hear what Tony and Leland have to say. Mary out. Absolutely. Uh, Leland, I was going to, did you have anything to add? If not, I have questions for you. Yeah, I'll add a, I'll add a, just a couple of points. And uh, Tracy, I appreciate the uh, invitation here and, and, and love the opportunity to speak uh, next to my uh, old friends, Mary and, and Tony. Uh, let me just add a couple of points on to what Mary said. I, I, won't, I won't go on too long on this, but I think when we were looking at the tech crackdown back in 2021, you had a, the dynamic of, of companies getting too big for the britches bunch of billionaire tech owners get too big for their britches. You had Ant and Alibaba and others looking like they were uh, not terribly responsive to regulators. They sort of wanted to do their own thing. Uh, they were also enriching a lot of, uh, you know, Chinese insiders who could potentially cause a problem for Xi Jinping or was or seen that way. So I think back in 2021, the big the big problem with the tech giants was that they were potentially representing a separate source of power that could uh, cause tension with what Xi Jinping wanted to do with the military, with the economy, and, and, and with the political system. I think we're seeing a different tech crackdown now. Uh, there's all this talk about how the tech crackdown is over and it's, you know, and there was all some excitement a year ago or so that, you know, the original, the original regulatory crackdown was over. That may be true in some ways, but what's really replaced it is something I think is a lot more troublesome if you're an investor and that is these large companies are being seen as increasingly as potential organs of the state maybe not directly but they're a large kitty and when you have you know a large piggy bank uh and 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 the party needs uh, to be able to fund all of its social programs and all of its other political responsibilities go forward it's going to be very tempting to use uh to use these uh these companies as you know whether it's through backdoor dividends or whether it's through guiding their corporate strategies to use them as organs of the state i think we're already seeing that uh and so uh as the corporate governance increasingly gets uh mucked up with uh, with the ambitions and the and the goals of the party, you have very very impressive world leading companies that are in some ways morphing into still advanced companies but organs of the state. And so, if you're an investor trying to figure out when the entry point is for a Tencent or a Alibaba, it's not just about whether there's some sort of regulatory system keeping these companies down. The question is whether on the corporate governance front, these companies represent what they used to represent, which was these dynamic companies that could do great things and be you know, world leaders um, in, in, in their various areas. Uh, there's a lot of questions to, to whether that's going in the wrong direction there. And then I have the China's financial sector, uh, including shadow banking and non-performing loans, has been a topic of concern for many policymakers. So, 
How do you perceive the stability of China's financial system, particularly in light of recent regulatory intervention? Yeah, this is the this is the point at which I get I get tomatoes thrown at me. But I'll say China's financial system is fine. Evergrande doesn't matter. It's fine. Country Garden doesn't matter. It's fine. Now, why am I saying this, despite the fact that we wake up every day to these headlines that China is about to collapse, you know, and all these terrible things are happening. The key is that China has a non-commercial financial system. The mistake so many non-China watchers, but also China watchers make is they assume that China works the same way that every other financial system in the world works. It doesn't. It's a non-commercial financial system. And what that what that means is, 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 is the the economy is run for the benefit of the party in a lot of ways. And it, you, you're not going to have a liquidity freeze. You're not going to have a single big crisis, a Lehman moment, because the, the, you know, the party can simply order lenders to lend and suppliers to supply and borrowers to borrow. So you're never going to have the same type of freeze up you did you know, in 2008. What do you have, though? You have a system that is constantly you know, a, a ship at sea with holes being poked in it, and you keep plugging up the holes. But in doing so, you're putting good money after bad. You're putting more and more capital uh, in non-productive, into non-productive uses. Instead of putting it towards innovation, you're paying off old debt. You're taking uncorrupted, relatively healthy companies and corrupting them uh, with the stink of the, the you know, these NPL-laden uh, co uh, companies by having, you know, good companies buy equity in bad companies and, you know, bail out bad companies. And so what you basically have is a system that's not particularly uh, uh, it's mostly impervious to a traditional financial system collapse. But on the other hand, what's the, the downside to this is, is that you're going to have slower and slower growth as more and more capital is diverted to paying off these, uh, these, these, these non-performing loans, to, to, to dealing with these debts, to absorbing them into the system. And what you're looking at is a future of very, very slow growth. And, and eventually stasis. And, and when I say that, I don't mean, you know, a, a downtick from 5.1% GDP growth to 49 to 4.8. We're talking about GDP that's in the 1% or 2% uh, before, before long. So this, this is the downside of the China system and as well as the upside. And then you often tweet not stimulus on, on, many of your, on many of your tweets. So, you know, why do you think that, I don't know, I guess looking at the stock market declines, right, and the property sector implosion and credit markets, you know, why don't you, why do you think the government has not done more and what are their options beyond what they're currently doing and or is this a kind of a controlled demolition? Yeah, I think it is a controlled demolition. I think the single most important sentence that I can convey to anyone listening here is Xi Jinping doesn't care. I'm always in, in rooms of investors and it's always, you know, when is he going to realize how much he's hurting us? When is he going to realize that, you know, what he's doing to the system? When is he going to feel the pain and, and, and hit his pain threshold and realize he has to go back to the old ways? The answer is probably never. Uh, you know, if, if you're looking at what Xi Jinping's priorities are right now, they're completely different than they were five and maybe even three years ago. You know, he's worried about national security priorities. He's building, worried about building up a domestic chip ecosystem. He's worried about creating paths around U.S. sanctions when they come, which means susceptibility to the U.S. dollar payment system and the U.S. dollar financial system writ large. These are the things that keep him up at night. He doesn't care about the GDP number. 
He doesn't care about some of these other economic data that mar- that are driving people crazy. He doesn't care about the stock market. You know, we've been saying this for years, and you keep getting the same nonsense from Wall Street, which is, oh, but at some point he's going to have to care. Or look at these beautiful valuations. Things are so cheap now. Now is probably a good p- time to go in because she, at some point, is going to feel the pain and reverse course. None of this stuff has happened. None of this stuff is likely to happen, although he will step in and make sure that there's sort of a, a bottom. So you're not going to some doom loop of, uh, because of lack of confidence. But other than establishing a floor in the economy and a floor in the stock market, I don't think Xi Jinping cares about what's going on. And I think that you're right to, to, to call what's happening in property a controlled demolition. There's, a, you know, there's this take, and, I, and my friends in the Wall Street Journal publish this stuff all the time. It's, it's, it's based on the idea that you know, things are, chaos is happening in China and things are falling apart and the property sector is just is disintegrating out from under the party and they don't know what to do. What they're actually doing is they're doing a controlled demolition of property. They don't want it to be the growth driver in the economy. They want to leverage it. Uh, so what are they doing? They're taking out the shadow banks one by one. They are making sure that 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 as you know you don't have a doom loop of uh, a doom loop of, of, of lack of confidence. But at the same time, you're not letting prices recover in any material way. You're not encouraging people to jump back into property. So I, I think a lot of this is 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 actually part of the plan. Not all of it. But a lot of it is actually part of Xi Jinping's plan. And then, Tony, did you go ahead, Mary? Did you have something uh, to add? Tracy, I, I just saw that we've got Bill Bishop listening, and I just wanted to say to everybody who's um, on this call: if you don't subscribe to Sinicism, you, you must, because it's essentially the PDB of China. So, um, thank, thanks for logging on there, Bill. It's uh, awesome to have you on. <laughs> That's it. That's my plug. All right. Thanks, Mary. Uh, moving on to Tony, did you have anything to add to what Leland said? If not, I can go ahead and talk to you about some other stuff. You have to unmute yourself, Tony. Hello? See there? <laughs> Tony, you have to unmute yourself. It's the bottom left-hand corner. All right. We will come back to you while you're figuring that out. Um, we'll go back to Mary. Did you have anything to add to what Leland had to say? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree completely with what Leland said, and I, and I think it underscores that other important phrase, which is, it's a party state. Um, and so you, you cannot look at uh, the goings-on in China's economy, whether it's the crackdown in the education sector or the tech sector, um, and, and think about it in the same way that you would think about U.S. markets or European markets. It's, it's, it's not the same goals. And that's where the politics becomes uber important. Um, if you don't really value human life or you don't really care about building economic prosperity aside from, you know, keeping people happy and off the streets and your priority is to increase uh, your, your power, your wealth, that of your family and your cronies, well, that's a very different. It's a very different system, and I'm frankly encouraged um, to see how corporate America is starting to react to this. I had a conversation yesterday with a Fortune 200 company that shall remain nameless, and uh, said to them, "You know, how are you thinking about your China business?" And the answer I got was, "Well, we're planning for a Russia-type situation where one day we're just going to pull everything out." And you would not have had that conversation even a couple of years ago, but I hear that repeatedly. Um, when I'm out there talking to clients. 
And then, um, what you know, geopolitics obviously is on everybody's radar. So, how do you perceive China's kind of growing assertiveness in the China South Sea, and what are its implications for regional stability? You can't think about China in isolation. We often are told that we should think about the U.S.-China relationship. Yes, that's important, but there's something much broader going on. There's a reordering of the world that is happening. We are out of the post-9/11 era in the war on terror. We're we're in a world where we're seeing blocks form, namely China, Russia, Iran, North Korea in one block, and then a free world block, and then you'll have nations in the middle, nations like Saudi Arabia or Turkey or Brazil that kind of want to straddle both sides. Um, so, you know, what are China's goals for the near abroad? Well, you, you look at three very simple things. Um, look at their military buildup, which we don't speak about a lot, but we should speak about it every day all the time because that tells you their intentions. And it's public. You can go read the China Military Power Report that's put out every year by our, our government um, that very clearly shows you their intent, which is to build a military that is aimed at us, that has global capabilities. Number two, you look at what they've done with that power as they have built it, namely become markedly more aggressive, not just toward their own people, but toward their neighbors. And there are plenty of examples. I won't waste your time with them, but you know, that's, that's very easy to observe. And then three, look at how Xi Jinping says he wants to use that power in the future. And he's very clear about that, that he wants to dominate his near abroad. He wants to invade his neighbors, right? He's, he's already done that. Um, India, um, for instance, that those border skirmishes are very significant. One of them happened during our time in office. It was actually a very serious um, crisis. He's done it with Vietnam. Um, Miles Yu, somebody else who I think for interested folks on the line, if you don't listen to China Insider, Miles' podcast, it's well worth a listen. Um, Miles had a wonderful podcast recently where he talked about the fact that there was more ammunition uh, expended in China's invasion of Vietnam in that war than there was in our Vietnam War. So, you know, again, another aspect of history that, and, and, a, and an indication of the, the aggressiveness of the regime back in the 70s that we don't really talk about. So those three things – Look at what they're building and its purpose. Look at how they've used it in the past and look at how they say they're going to use it in the future. And, and those are important inputs as you're thinking about investment decisions. Now, again, everybody has a different time horizon, different risk profile, different different investment goals, right? We're not running an investment seminar, and I'm glad you said that at the top, Tracy. You should be very clear about that. But it's very important that we recognize the reality of this regime and, and the risks associated with it and plan accordingly. And that's that's a basic message, but uh, a message that I think a lot of investors haven't heeded until recently. Whoops, I forgot to unmute myself. Um, how, and speaking of, you know, China's relations with other countries. How would you assess China's Belt and Road initiatives, initiative in terms of economic and strategic implications for the countries involved, particularly, particularly uh, that kind of a race for critical minerals in, in Africa? I'll answer this very quickly because I really want to get Leland and Tony in. But Xi Jinping has talked repeatedly and frequently about decoupling from us. And he's very open about that. And China's dual circulation strategy 
is about building up its own capacity to decouple from us while they attract our capital and our know-how in um, to keep us involved until they can do that. The Belt and Road um, is an attempt to build a different and separate economic sphere but you're seeing the implications of this today in this block that I talked about, these blocks that I talked about, insofar as China's consumer market is keeping Russia afloat, uh, Russia's energy is being sold to China and keeping the Russian economy afloat, as European nations have withdrawn from the Russian energy market and, and gone and found uh, supply elsewhere. Um, but Again, you know, look at what Xi Jinping says and what he does. And I, I'm very frustrated often with this idea that, gosh, you know, you hear Janet Yellen talk about, well, we can't decouple from China. It's such an important economy. Well, well, think, look at what they're saying and what they're doing. They want to decouple from us, and we ought to believe them. Um, so Belt and Road is just, you know, it's an important part of a larger strategy. Um, but again, I'll turn it over to Leland and Tony. Let's get them in. Tony, are you here finally? Yes. Sorry about my technology <laughs> issues. I apologize. Hey, um, I have been listening for the last half an hour and uh, frustratingly trying to get in. L let me make a couple of comments just on the, the stuff that was said earlier, and then I'll comment okay. on Belt and Road, okay? Um, yeah, I was definitely so, going to ask you on Belt and Road, so but go yeah. make your comments. <laughs> so that framing things up early in the conversation, one of the things I have to, and and both Mary and Leland, who it's really intimidating coming after these guys um, uh, set up really well, is that Westerners have an illusion and a projection about China that isn't reality, that, that someday, and this was the hope with the WTO accession, is um that someday china will evolve i guess into being more of a western style economy and western style society it's not going to happen okay um and the westerners who are in china to some extent have an illusion of comfort and trust that simply isn't there um and again they project their bias onto the people around them the areas that they're in are clean and nice and and other things um, and we have to think about a place like Singapore, okay? Singapore does that extremely well. You know, it's clean, it's great. I, Singapore is not part of China, but this kind of Western environment, quasi-Western environment in China was modeled on Singapore uh, 30 years ago, okay? And so in Singapore, Westerners feel very comfortable. And if they don't think all of their electronic communications are being monitored in Singapore, they're, they're naive. And in China, it's the very same thing. If they don't think every single thing they say, do, place they go, et cetera, et cetera, is monitored, they're naive. Um, and the climate has changed dramatically. I would say 2017 was probably the last kind of normal year in China, meaning we had this status quo of a uh, one sphere for, say, foreigners or Westerners in China and one sphere for Chinese uh, in China that, that kind of harkens back to kind of the treaty ports of, you know, 100 plus years ago. Um, in 2018, I was having a conversation with uh, a friend who's very well connected with the ruling class in, in China. And this person said, it is not safe for Americans to be in China. You should not go back to China. Okay. And so I haven't been back to China since 2018. Now, does that mean you're going to be taken in? Does that mean, you know, et cetera, et cetera? No, but 
it's uh, I would say the environment of scrutiny is much more delicate and has been since 2018 than it was before. Okay. And so what we have to understand about China, especially foreign companies in China, is the leadership, if they're foreigners, the leadership with those foreign nationals, uh, national companies will be there for a limited number of years. Okay. And they all know that there are issues, but they're all just hoping that those issues don't manifest or become known until after they rotate out. Okay. So all of those leaders of foreign national companies in China um, are trying to hold off those issues until they rotate out so that the next guy or next woman can, can have to deal with it. Okay. So, so there's this kind of pushing things off and pushing things off. And I think this has successfully been pushed off for years and years. And now many of these companies are having to face this. We've seen this with the raids on on Western companies and Japanese companies and so on and so forth. Okay. So getting to the Belt and Road, um, you know, initially the Belt and Road solved some or was intended to solve some really convenient problems for China. There's an excess of labor. You had, you know, construction projects in China that were winding down. Uh, doing these construction projects overseas would no mobilize that later labor overseas so that they didn't get restless at home. Um, it was a fairly passive way for China to extend debt to countries overseas uh, and utilize, you know, mobilize their own domestic companies uh, while securing debt with these countries that are not really investment grade for the most part. Okay. Um, and building out the infrastructure for, say, their world trade uh, intentions. Um, now, that changed. So it was really launched in Kazakhstan, I think, in 2013. That changed in 2016. And I think Indonesia was the first current country to really catch on to how to game the Belt and Road system. Okay, so what they did is they forced, I think it was Exim Bank, I, I can't remember exactly who the party was, but they forced that company to become an equity investor in this high-speed rail that was being built between Jakarta and Bandung, okay? So instead of being a fairly passive debt um, uh, relationship, now that initial uh, build-out where that debt occurs is about 5% of the total lifetime value of an infrastructure asset, okay? So instead of China just having that 5% initial investment at risk, with them becoming equity partners in that rail, they now have 49% of the total lifetime cost and maintenance of that infrastructure asset at risk. So Indonesians and Malaysians were the very first to really push back on China. And I had... I had done work inside of the NDRC for about two years. The NDRC is the planning commission in China. Um, and there were whispers among higher levels that the Belt and Road was falling apart. Okay. So I had given warnings to people since 2017 when I rotated out of the NDRC um, that the Belt and Road wasn't what it was intended to be. It's become something else. And I have a lot of thoughts on that. But, but the Belt and Road as intended is broken. And it's become um, fairly corrupt, as if it wasn't in the start. And corrupt is relative. I mean, 
We have corruption in American infrastructure projects. We have corruption in European infrastructure projects. So corrupt is a relative number, right? How much of this is falling into people's pockets? That's a relative number. Uh, but you know, this stuff has become a much more uh, pervasive, invisible part of this. And again, it's it's evolved into rather than a say beneficiary country uh, of the Belt and Road, as Leland said, it's become an organ of the state. Um, and it's become about uh, the state's expansion overseas. And then I kind of want to talk about the economy slowing in um, slowing in China, right? And we're seeing kind of do you, if we look at the manufacturing sector, and I'm going about this in a roundabout way because I want to. Uh, talk about commodities a little bit, but um, if you look at the manufacturing sector as a percentage of the GDP in China, it's been on the decline since the early 2000s. Um, does this, do you think this means China's losing its manufacturing uh, dominance? And, you know, if so, what does that mean for commodity markets? Is that a question for me? Uh, yes. Okay, great. Um, well, you know, Western economists have been trying to push China into a more services-oriented economy for 20 years. Uh, and so the, the fall in the share of manufacturing should surprise nobody. Um, and even before the financial crisis in 2007, 8, 9, we had companies, especially Japanese companies, who were working on a China plus one, China plus two strategy, meaning they would use China as a base of their manufacturing, but they would also use other countries, particularly say Malaysia or Thailand or other countries of, to manufacture their goods. With the financial crisis, uh, risk appetite dried up. They already had a base of manufacturing in China. So they said, look, we're just gonna stay with China. Um, and they didn't expand out their manufacturing base. So we had a decade of kind of laziness in supply chain where people said, you know what, I don't really want to spend the money to build a, a broader manufacturing base. So we're just going to stick with China and everyone kind of doubled down on their manufacturing base in China. Obviously with COVID, we saw the risks associated with a concentrated manufacturing base. And, you know, a lot of us have been talking about this for years where there's a uh, a movement toward regionalization. And we have a European center of regionalization. We have a North American center of regionalization. That is, I would say, an incremental aspiration, not a uh, substitutional aspiration. Okay. What I mean by that is those manufacturers, nobody, I don't know of anybody who intends to completely remove their manufacturing from China. They intend to have, say, opportunistically, say for the US, have maybe assembly of certain goods done in Mexico because you have what's called a tariff classification change when there's assembly, and then those goods are imported into the US duty-free, okay? So part of it is the risk associated with concentration of uh, manufacturing in a single place, but you also have the opportunism around free trade agreements and other things. So these Chinese uh, companies, aren't necessarily manufacturing at home. They're starting to put um, uh, manufacturing sites in other places. And if we look at like um, the Chinese EV maker, they're, they're putting a, I can't remember their name. Uh, they're putting a, um, a site in Hungary and they're putting a site in Mexico. They're at least looking at that, right? And so 
they're doing that as a way to take advantage of the duty-free importation of those finished goods. So they, they export CKD goods or, or, um, or components, then they assemble them in the final country, and then they don't have duties when they enter either the US or the EU. Excellent, thank you. Were you done? Did you yeah, cut? I could I go on for a I long don't know if you time. Were done or you cut out. <laughs> we can go on for a long time, Crazy. All right. I'm going to move back over to Leland. I kind of want to um, pick your brain a little bit about this because you have mentioned China's economic slowdown. Obviously, China's demographic challenges, including an aging population and gender imbalance, are significant. Um, so, you know. How do you see these challenges affecting the economic trajectory? And then if you could bring that around to, say, commodities, because commodity traders look to China kind of to gauge global demand, because that's where all of the demand was coming from. So are, should we perhaps be looking elsewhere for demand and, and expect a slowdown in China? Yes. And I, can go, <laughs> and I can go on. Um, so yeah, the, look, the the long term trajectory of China. I I, I was sort of mentioning this before. Is is a long term slowdown, and at, at much slower levels of growth than we've been talking about for the past, you know, even the last several years. Yeah, we're going down to, to to low single digits of growth. That doesn't mean the economy is going to fall apart. It doesn't mean China's not a you know economic and military and political challenge for the United States and others. It simply means that the, the economy, the dynamics of the economy are changing. The the Chinese economic system for decades has been focused on the idea of targeting artificially high levels of growth, uh, growing at whatever organic level that they did, and then juicing on top through the property sector by providing you know enormous amounts of credit to the property sector, uh, which would create GDP growth because of course GDP growth is aggregate growth, not some sort of productive growth. And so you'd always hit your GDP target and then, you know, there people would walk around the room and high five each other as if something was accomplished. But all you were really doing is, is driving way too much credit into a system to produce artificially high levels of growth that weren't sustainable. So to, to Xi Jinping's credit, uh, They've reversed course. They're they're no longer looking to do this. This is no longer the the social compact in China is no longer focused around high levels of growth. I think the way to look at this would be back a number of years ago, the party would say to the people, you know, we're one we're one party system, you support us, and we will deliver you high levels of growth and we will make you rich. And I would say 2021 or thereabouts, the, the social compact changed. And the social compact now between the party and the people is about the idea that we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna deliver slower, healthier growth, and we're going to diversify uh, and, and, and broaden out um, who, who, gets, you know, who, who gets wealthy off this. And we're going to deal with income inequality. We're going to deal with all the things that, are, that, are, that have been pecking at the system. Uh, and we're going to redefine what the Chinese economic growth model means. That's what we've been doing for the last several years. It's why it is deeply frustrating to look uh, at what Wall Street puts out month after month after month after month, which is just predictions of more stimulus and predictions of, of uh, you know, of, of, of some some sort of big build, build, build or big monetary move. You know, this is this is not the way the system's guide anymore. These are not the priorities of the people on top. So we're looking at a long-term slowdown. 
that is baked in the card structurally. It doesn't mean cyclically we're not going to have some 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 turnups. You know, 2023 for all the talk of collapse in the middle of the year, which you know anyone who follows us knows that we were calling that complete nonsense uh, throughout the year. There was everyone was way too optimistic at the beginning of 2023 because there was never there never were there, there never was much evidence that they were going to have this you know massive rebound and rally uh, into the year. But as soon as that didn't happen, every you know markets are bipolar, and so. Yeah, Everyone switched the other side and said China's collapsing. That wasn't true either. 2023 was better than 2022 uh, in every way except property. Uh, but it was just a very disappointing recovery. And so, you know, you can have these cyclical tick-ups. 2024 could be a cyclical tick-up if they get more serious about fiscal stimulus, which they have not so far, not in our data at least. Uh, so, you know, you can see these cyclical turnups. Structurally speaking, we're heading in one direction. That's not going to change. That's not a two-year thing. It's not a five-year thing. This is, is much deeper in the future. The, if, you, if you try to talk about the implications for commodities, well, they're pretty obvious. You know, China is no longer, is no longer, and will no longer be the demand center for commodities going forward. It doesn't mean there still won't be people building houses and building buildings. Of course there will. But this idea that there is a, uh, you know, that China is going to represent this, this, this commodities uh, you know, foundation for, for a new super cycle. I mean, we've been arguing this for the last three, four years. Goldman every year for the last, I think, four years is called a commodity super cycle, and things have been going in the opposite direction. And one of the reasons they're so wrong about so many things, but in particular, commodity super cycle, is that China is not going to be, there is, there's no foundation for a commodity super cycle in the world. China will never be the foundation of a commodity super cycle. United States is not going to be the foundation of a commodity super cycle anytime soon, at least. So there, you don't have the foundation for there to be this super cycle. You can have cyclical recoveries, you know, you can have uh, slowdown, uh, you know, be uh, arrested to some degree, uh, if it turns out we go into another trade war next year, like I think is very, very likely, actually, um, then, you know, then they can they can put a little more policy stimulus on top versus less. But the, the trajectory of the economy is, is pretty clear. And the trajectory of commodities demand, while growing, because it's a growing country, you know, is never going to be what it was before. So I think we have to be very, very uh, humble in terms of, uh, of, of, of what or you know, moderated in our expectations about what China is going to provide going forward. And then... <clears throat> Um, how do you assess China's efforts to transition from sort of an export-driven economy to one uh, driven by domestic consumption? One, is this even possible? Is it, you know, within kind of the nature of the Chinese people? Yeah, I, I would describe that as flaming hot nonsense. Uh, nothing of the sort is happening. You know, th there's there, there was a marketing campaign that went on for a number of years. That, you know, the Chinese consumer was going to rise from the ashes like a phoenix and become this 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 global growth driver of demand. That was never real. Um, and you know, there are reasons why it's never real. The Chinese system suppresses households. It it, it financially suppresses consumers. So they don't have the ability in China's system, they're not incentivized to spend more. You know, there are things that they could do structurally to empower consumers. You know, they can appreciate the currency, give them more purchasing power. They can transfer assets from the from the state sector to the household sector, the private sector. There, there, there are, you know, they can boost the social safety net. There are things structurally they could do to help effectuate some sort of transition from investment to consumption. But in reality, that's not happening. And for the most part, it's going the other direction. So there is no con you know, cons consumer 
driven economy. There's no domestic demand that's rising up from the ashes, as, as we've been told to expect for, for, for literally decades now. Uh, what's been happening is there's much more of a political uh, concern that China in this world of sanctions and uh, you know, growing conflict, that China could be in real deep trouble if it is too uh, vulnerable to you know foreign supply chains, to foreign payment systems, to 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 foreign inputs, et cetera. And so there is a focused effort on the part of uh, on the part of the party right now to to build up things like a domestic chip ecosystem to 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 try to, to, to diminish reliance on the United States and the West. It's not really possible to do that uh, in a big way, but I think they're going to do what they can because there's a worry about it. So they're going to be talking about domestic demand. The reality is that's not happening. Um, and what is happening is you still see an enormous uh, emphasis on exports. You know, the reason I mentioned that we're probably going into a trade war again next year is regardless of who the U.S. president is, is that I think that you know, you're seeing the Chinese strategy, uh, which has been based on stimulating the, the supply side creating enormous overcapacity. This is, of course, not new. It's what they've been doing for years, but you're seeing it in a big way with EVs, in a big way with solar, in a big way with batteries. There's way too many companies and there's way too much production domestically. Uh, so the market's not going to get absorb all that. You're going to have to export it all. You're already seeing that begin. And there's an enormous uh, political worry over that happening in the EU, particularly with cars, and in the United States as well with, with, with all these issues. So um, there is still a reliance on an export-driven model. It, it may not be as broad as before, but in very key important sectors of the economy, uh, they're, they're doubling down, tripling down, and quadrupling down. So I think a lot of the political angst we had over the export-driven model isn't going away. It's actually returning, and I think next year is going to be worse than worse than we've seen for a while. And Mary, did you have anything to add to that? Well, Tracy, I, I think your 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 question contains some assumptions that I often hear on the street, and I might offer a, a little bit of a contrarian point of view. One of the words that you said was, um, you know. How will China's demographics impact, you know, their growth and therefore the impact on commodity markets? Demographics, yes, it's important to economic growth, but that's not the problem. The problem is the system. There are plenty of small nations that are quite wealthy, um, at, uh, you know, that, that manage to generate economic prosperity because they have better systems. Um, I, it, it, so the system is the problem. Secondly, um, you know, Leland talked about the social compact, um, you know, I, again, I might just offer a different point of view. There is no social compact. This is a totalitarian system. Nobody elected these people. There's no compact. Um, you know, they impose their will on 1.3 billion people who could be even wealthier were the party not there, which is the third fallacy that I think, you know, a lot of the street has been kind of propagandized for decades, you know, lauding this, these, uh, you know, strongmen essentially saying, isn't it great they lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty? Well, no, that's not the right way to look at it, in my view. You should look at it from the other point of view, which is, gosh, where would China be without the party? The party has retarded China's growth. It has impoverished the earnings capability of the Chinese people. Everything that they're doing is not for the benefit of lifting up the nation and the people. They don't represent these people. And so, you know, uh, I, I agree with much of what Leland has said, that, 
you know, this idea that, you know, the consumer was going to drive the economy was always a fiction because the consumer is limited by the constraints of China. But you have to go a step further, I think, and say, well, why are they limited? Well, they're limited because there are capital controls that are imposed by the party. Why does the party impose capital controls on the Chinese people? Because they, they want to essentially capture their savings and use them for their own purposes, to build the military, to build up the domestic security system, to enrich the party. You know, a lot of that growth that we've seen in China has accrued to the party. It hasn't accrued to the average Chinese person. We don't talk about that a lot, but we should. And so um, take, for instance, the, the lockdown. I was always skeptical that China was going to have some big boom after the lockdown, just for commonsensical purposes. If you're locked in your apartment building for three years, you're screaming from your windows, um, you see your friends dying because you don't have access to vaccines of the West, um, and the vaccines that you're being given by your own country you know, aren't working, um, and, and then you're, you are told, oh, okay, the lockdown is over. Are you naturally, as a human being, going to go out and consume and you know, go buy that Buick? No, of course not. You're going to hoard your capital. You're going to try to get it out of the country to a safer place. You're going to try to get your kids out of the country to a safer place. You know, that's why the party elite's kids are getting educated at Harvard and in Australia and Canada, because they know better. So, again, um, the problem is, is not the party. The, rather, the problem is not that you know, they haven't implemented the, the, like the right growth model or they haven't you know, had that, that moment where they wake up and go, gosh, you know, if we only had property rights, we'd all be richer. No, it, it's, it's a party state. I just want to really drill this in. It's a party state, and this is a natural outcome of a party state, that 1% to 2% growth that, that Leland is, is, I think, very correctly projecting and, and talking about. But one more thing to consider if you're an investor on the, on the line is – um, you know, these systems look very stable until they're not. The Soviet Union looked very stable until it wasn't. We didn't predict the Arab Spring. We didn't predict uh, the, the 2008 um, you know, protests, mass protests in Iran. We didn't, you know, we're not very good at foreseeing that. And we have very little good information about what's actually going on inside China. It's not like the Wall Street Journal or the Times or Bloomberg can kind of wander around the country and tell you what's going on. Um, it, when we did have you know, sort of minimal data you know, many years ago when I was based in Hong Kong, there were thousands of protests going on across the country every year. And that was like more than a decade ago. So you've got to wonder after these lockdowns, you know, what, what is the situation really like in Hebei or the, you know, the far reaches of you know, Xinjiang? We don't know. That is a big black hole. And so I'm not saying that it's, it's likely um, that, you know, you could have another sort of set of nationwide protests like you had in 89 where the protests weren't just in Beijing. They were in cities all across China. We never talk about that. Uh, but I do think that, it, that that is a, a possibility that must be considered just given the dire state of the economy, the enormous number of unemployed, particularly youth, um, you know, we should be humble about our knowledge of what's actually occurring and, and humble about what we know um, of, of the power dynamics within the leadership because it's just not transparent. And so, you know, look, look to, to what happened in the Soviet Union, learn from that um, similar system, 
very different global economy, obviously, different approach. We're far more invested in China than we ever would have been in the Soviet Union. Um, but this is not a stable, productive, sustainable system. Maybe I'll leave it at that. Excellent. Thank you. <clears throat> and then, Tony, I don't know if you have anything to add to that. Yeah, can I? Can I, I think what Mary uh, brings up about protests is, is really interesting. I remember, I think it was 2010 when I was with The Economist, I gave a speech at the Central Communist Party School in Beijing, and um, I was—I I didn't edit what I was saying for that group, and uh, and part of my presentation was on protests in China, and um, and at this point there were people protesting over old age pensions, over property, over the price of things, because I don't know if you remember in that time period, 2010-11, we had double digit inflation, that sort of thing. And the Chinese know, you know, Chinese citizens know this stuff is, is happening. Um, it's it's never on CCTV. Um, it's never in the, the media, but they know this stuff. And kind of Chinese people are not afraid to argue with each other. They're not afraid to speak up. Well, they're not afraid to speak up informally, um, but they do know this stuff happens. And, um, and it happens regularly. There are thousands of protests in China every year. So, you know, I think that... Um, you know, a lot of what Mary said, well, both Mary uh, and Leland uh, saying about the consumer won't drive the economy, commodities, if you look with this stimulus, and I'm sure Leland said this, I was trying to re-log back in, but um, commodities haven't really moved, even with, uh, you know, supposed stimulus we've had out of China. Um, and and exporting deflation, as Leland said, that's that's in their DNA now. It's been in there for 40 years. It's not leaving. So exporting deflation is a um, is a feature of a command economy uh, because people are incentivized to overproduce. This happened in the Soviet Union. It's happening in China. Exporting deflation will continue. That's a feature of that system because they have concentration in certain industries and they continue to scale it out and build it out. So one of the things to, to be really sensitive to around China, or at least be aware of, is when you talk to any official in China, there, there are two comparisons that they really, it really makes their skin crawl. The first one is they do not want to be compared to the Soviet Union politically. If you really ever want to get a Chinese official engaged, start talking about the collapse of the Soviet Union in the late 80s, early 90s, and make some analogies to China. They will, you know, they will jump out of their seat. The friendship may not last long, but you'll definitely get them animated. The other one, and the easier analogy to make, is to Japan um, economically and demographically. So it's a very uncomfortable uh, discussion to have with people, um, but it, it is warranted. And, you know, in think tanks, there's something like 500 think tanks in Beijing. In think tanks in Beijing, people are thinking about this stuff. Nothing is published, but there is a paranoia of China becoming the Soviet Union politically and Japan economically. And, you know, will it? Well, we heard Leland say that they're going to have, you know, 1% uh, economic growth rates as far as the eye can see. So I think given their demographic profile, that's that's a real danger and a real risk. So the other comment uh, that I would have on on what Mary said is she asked a very good question. Where would China be without the party? We only have to look at Taiwan to understand where China would be without the party, okay? Um, uh, the, the Taiwanese government at the time of the revolution was actually a functionally socialist government. So 
you know, the the degree of socialism between socialism and communism w- was really what they were kind of fighting over and really fighting over who was in power. Um, but they were effectively functionally a socialist government um, that had 30 years of totalitarianism when they moved to Taiwan, which we don't talk about anymore. And they only had their first elections in the early 90s. Um, and then we look at where Taiwan has come since the early 90s in terms of democratic institutions and in terms of their economy, we could have seen the mainland go through that same transition uh, and things would be much more interesting. I mean, they're very interesting from an academic parochial perspective, but they would be much more interesting economically because the business people on the mainland are extremely smart. They know how to game systems. They know how to enter markets. They know how to manage businesses. Um, had they had a similar development to what Taiwan has, they would have a, a very robust society, very robust business environment, and we wouldn't have to worry about a lot of these kind of central planning issues that we that bring on all sorts of knock-on effects in uh, in China right now. And then uh, I wanted to ask, but um, how do you see China's role? evolving in uh, global economic governments and institutions such as the IMF, World Bank, WTO, especially considering its growing aspirations for for greater leadership on the world stage? Well, we have to remember 10 years ago, you know, China, although they had a huge economy, they were effectively a secondary player in a lot of these multilateral organizations. And really it was, only when Xi Jinping came to power that they became assertive in these organizations. Before they kind of had this air of, you know, hey, we're the new guy here and we're gonna kind of play nice. I mean, not entirely, but but a little bit, especially within say IMF World Bank. Now, one of the things in the IMF founding guidelines, and I, I used to know the chapter and the section where it says that the the holder of the largest number of um, shares in the IMF is where the headquarters of the IMF is located, okay? So right now that's DC and that's very easily and clearly DC because the US is the largest shareholder. But we really have to watch the shareholding of the IMF because there is an absolute kind of shameless approach from Beijing they want to be the headquarters of the IMF. They want to be the largest shareholder in the IMF because that is the ultimate uh, endorsement of their economic credibility. So we should watch for a much more aggressive Chinese positioning within the IMF. Obviously they've been very aggressive, Um, but once they can get that headquarters uh, assignment, um, which we'll see the IMF go through a lot of contortions to make sure that stays in DC. But if they can get that headquarters assignment, we'll see a Chinese IMF head. We'll see, you know, very clear Chinese policies uh, within the IMF and so on. And that changes, really changes a lot of global economic governance. And Leland, I'd like to get your thoughts on that as well. Well, they they care. You know, uh, they they care about economic leadership, and they understand that being being having having a raised profile in its standards organizations and and economic organizations is important. And so they're playing the game. Uh, we're not always playing the game anymore. 
Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think that this is uh, not really much to add to, to, to what Tony was saying. I think that it's, but it is a focus of, of Chinese leadership to be more engaged. And uh, so we, we need a better strategy. Uh, you know, it seems like half the time we want to pull out and the other half time we want to double down. And, and uh, that's not a very effective, uh, you know, strategy going forward. Tracy, can I, can I just, just add one thought to this? Yes, please. You can think of Chinese engagement in international institutions like a cancer. When they go in and they run them, as they did with Interpol, you can very clearly see that they want to change the institution to be an instrument of communi Chinese communist power. And so whether it's uh, Interpol, whether it's some of the U other UN agencies, um, this trend is very clear. And in the Trump administration, we set up a strategy to start to reassert American leadership within these institutions, especially the most important ones. The Biden administration has continued it, for instance, with the election to the um, International Telecommunications Union. That was a big win for the United States. The Biden team worked very hard on that. Um, so, you know, Leland and Tony are right. They care. But they don't care for the reasons that we care. They care because they don't want it to be an international institution. They want these to be Chinese institutions run for, by uh, Chinese. And so that, that to me, that, that, that's the easiest way to understand their involvement. Excellent. Thank you. And we're coming up on the hour. So the, we will do the final round. I don't want to take up too much of your time, although I could talk for another hour with you guys. Um, the final round is the same question for all three of you. Um, we'll start with Leland. First, you know, you can talk about something that you wanted to talk about that we didn't get a chance to talk about. And or what should we as uh, investors particularly be looking at uh, over the next couple of years in China? Well, I'll go back to something that, that I and we have been saying for, for many, many years, which is the, the, the problem with watching China and the Chinese economy is that the vast majority of people who are out there talking are out there talking their book. They're people who have a vested interest in market access or market entry into China. They, they are trying to sell you a product in China. It's very hard to get credible people who are out there presenting analysis and insight and commentary who don't have their own personal views or at least a no economic interest in this. So, you know, I hope what we can do going forward is, is just have a, have a more uh, open conversation about, uh, you know, who's involved in guiding our views on China and Chinese economy and investment in China and what are their stakes in it? And, you know, are they, are they incentivized to tell a story that isn't real? So hopefully we're gonna be moving towards getting better information out of China, even though it's getting harder to get information out of China, simply by discounting all those people who are out there who are uh, who have a bone to pick for, for personal reasons and, and, and uh, financial reasons. So hopefully uh, we are going to be uh, looking forward with more open eyes in terms of the type of information we're getting out of China, because it's so important right now. There's so much Leaving aside the economic relationship, you know, we have the potential for, for terrible things to happen in the Taiwan Strait, terrible things to happen in the South China Sea, terrible things to happen all over the world if, if the U.S. and U.S. and China and others don't understand each other. So hopefully we're going to all be a little bit more 
uh, open-eyed in terms of understanding what we're seeing out of China, so that we can we can filter it better and uh, and get a better idea of, of each other's intentions. And then, Mary, uh, the same question, talk about something that you wanted to talk about that we didn't get a chance to and or which we as investors be looking at over the next couple of years. Uh, I, I just think what Leland says is just so spot on. I mean, you, you really have to uh, analyze China in the same way that you'd analyze um, any any other country. Don't don't give them a pass um, just because you think you need to, to be there or be invested. And I'm encouraged that we're even having dialogues like this. And, and I'm encouraged by the conversation I have with clients. I guess what I'd add to Leland is that, you know, there, there are good sources of, of, of information out there um, that I, I really think are valuable. I've, I've mentioned uh, two of them. Uh, I think Bill Bishop's Sinicism is a must read. Um, I think Miles Yu's podcast, China Insider from the Hudson Institute is a must listen. I think China Beige Book, what Leland does, um, you know, in trying to source, you know, actual economic data that is, is not propaganda is extremely valuable. So I think if you have that, you know, curiosity or um, if you're if you're worried that somehow, you know, you, you, you've just been reading their propaganda or listening to people who are talking their book, you, you can change that. There are places where you can go and educate yourself. And I'd encourage everybody, everybody on the line to, to do that. And thanks for the conversation today, Tracy. Lots of fun. Excellent. Thank you. And Tony, same question. Thank you, Trace. Um, so there are a couple of things. First, we have to be careful of whatever our bias is toward China. Okay. So if we're if we're uh, if we doubt everything coming out of China, um, you know, we have a negative bias. So we have to be aware of that as we read things from China. Not everything that China does is evil and awful. There are some there are some decent things that China does. The people in China are wonderful and beautiful, and I I, I really love them. Um, the, even the government bureaucrats many times are very capable um, and very good people. But we have to acknowledge that they're in a system that doesn't respect them or their. Um, say in many cases, good intentions. Okay, so we we have to be careful to, on some level, separate the people from the system, and we have to be aware of our bias as we read uh, information about China. Um, and so, you know, I, I think we have to be wary. But as you you know follow that person on Twitter or read that book or see that person on the news. You also have to understand what their bias is as well. So I would say be skeptical or, or uh, yeah, be, be, have a healthy skepticism to things that you read from China, but don't necessarily discount everything that you read as lies. Because I see people who are warmongering China, Taiwan, who are saying everything China says is wrong. Or, and this is something that they do for clicks. And, you know, that's a great business model, but it really dumbs down the conversation. Okay, so that's the first thing that I would say as anybody approaches uh, China. I think um, the other thing that I, I really wanted to bring up was this new, uh, this new law uh, that China announced around the state secrets law. Um, I'm going to be publishing something on uh, our cloak and dagger website probably in about an hour um, on this. 
But I would encourage everyone to um, to look into that law and um, really understand what it means. Now, there is intentional ambiguity in this law, okay? Meaning um, there is not a definition of exactly what a state secret is. And that's intentional so that the people who handle government-related or even domestic market-related information self-censor. And again, I lived in Singapore long enough to see a lot of people fall into the the comfort of self-censorship. And so, you know, we'll see executives, we'll see um, academics, uh, we'll see think tankers self-censor because they don't want to fall um, uh, kind of in the path of this law. And I would encourage anybody who's a journalist or an analyst or a think tanker or even a business person, um, you know, you have to be careful while you're in China. But when you're out of China, you have to tell the truth, right? You really have to. And you have to give your sincere observation on what's what's happening. So um, dig into this law, understand it. If you have people in China or if you go to China, be careful of it. Um, when I worked at IHS, um, there was about two years before I worked for IHS, there was a very high-profile high case of somebody who had gotten some oil and gas data uh, that was at the time publicly available information, but they then published it in a private article and the government put them in jail for, I think, 10 years or something. I Leland would know the names around that, but I, I don't remember the names and, and all the details, but they put him in jail for a long time uh, around it, and I believe he was uh, was a Chinese citizen or an Australian citizen working for an American company. There were also some things around Rio Tinto, uh, uh, around some uh, information that was disclosed to them during a negotiation, and people went to jail for that. So we have to be really careful about information that is disclosed to us when we're in China. That's again, I would recommend anybody look into that law and understand it if you have operations or people in China. Excellent. Thank you. Again, thank you all for your time today. I know I really appreciate it. I know our listeners really appreciate it. Um, I hope everybody has a great rest of their day, and I will see you guys next Wednesday. Thank you again, everyone.